The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, my name is Penny, and uh, I'm the senior pastor here, and it is great to be with you. And if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 4. Uh, Romans chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you, and we'll project the passage in just a moment. Um, over the last few weeks, we've been going through the book of Romans, and uh, last week we came to this section at the end of chapter 3 where Paul was responding to, um, or he was instructing us in uh, what the response to sin is. So uh, if you remember the chapter 1, verse 18 through 320, Paul has this long, uh, long discussion about our fallenness, our sinfulness, our rebellion against God, the ways that we have turned away from him. And he said last week that through Jesus's work on the cross, we're saved by grace through faith, that that is the only hope for sinful people. That is the only hope for this world, that we are saved by grace through faith. And in fact, um, Eight times in those 11 verses last week, he repeated that word, faith. Well, he's picking up on that theme some more this morning. Because as we look at Romans 4, we're going to look at all of Romans 4 this morning. Um, I know we've been taking kind of Romans a little bit in smaller chunks, but, but really it's, it's hard to break up this chapter. It's one long illustration. But, but um, in Romans 4, what we see is Paul continuing with this theme of faith. He uses the word 11 times. And so it should cause us to ask ourselves, well, what is faith? Who is faith for? And what does faith look like? Well, it's those questions that drive us to the passage this morning. So follow along with me in your Bibles, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who, were not, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir to the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. 
For it, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do, uh, we do thank you for your word, and we ask that as we come to it now, that by your spirit, you would make us people of faith, that you would deepen our faith, that it would be rooted in you, that we would look to you for our righteousness, and that we would uh, stand before you humble. So, Father, I pray that you would work and move, and that you would be with us now, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, where is it that people put their faith? Uh, now, when we use that word faith, uh, we might think of it as a spiritual or religious word, right? Christian faith, the faith of a particular religion. We might think of it in those ways, and, and rightfully so, right? I mean, that's what we are. We're people of faith. But, but generally speaking, the truth is, is that everyone has faith. Everyone has faith. If we change that word faith to trust, We'll start to think about it a little bit more. We'll start to see it in our world a little bit more. But really, everyone has faith. So where is your faith? Where are the people around you putting their faith? Well, I posed this question to some friends this week. I sent a text out to them and just asked them, where in our world, where in the people around you that, that you are spending time with, where do you see them putting their faith? And it didn't take long for me to get responses. <laughs> in fact, I got many, many responses. They didn't have to think very hard. They said things like, well, people put their faith in their health, right? If, if I take care of my body, if I take care of what goes into me, then my body will take care of me. I, I put my faith in my health. Or I put faith in my wealth, right? If I can accumulate enough wealth, I can build a big enough retirement package. When, when the market's not doing well, I don't panic and I keep investing, then, then eventually it will take care of me. I just have to have faith in my wealth, in the market. People have faith in good habits and patterns of living. The list went on. People have faith in their own resolve and willpower in discipline, in parenting techniques, in schooling, in, in productivity, in therapy, in doctors, in experts, in relationships, in cultural influence, in self, and it just kept going. That, that wasn't even all of them. <laughs> but what became very apparent to me was that every single person, whether you are religious or irreligious, 
Whether you have known Jesus your entire life or this is the first Sunday you've been to a church, every one of us has faith in something. We have faith in something. You see, the problem isn't that we have faith. The problem is where we have put our faith. And the overwhelming message of the, of the Bible, not just of Romans, but of the Bible, is that we are to put our faith in God. We're to put our faith in God. But what will that look like? Right? I mean, that sounds all well and good, put your faith in God. But what does faith in God look like? Is it the same as putting our faith in wealth or influence or ourselves? Well, our passage is showing us what faith looks like, and it's showing us by using primarily the life of Abraham. You notice Abraham is, he's the central character of this passage, right? That that Paul is invoking his life to illustrate what a life of faith looks like. And what we see is that true faith looks like trusting in God's credit. Now, I know if you're following along in your bulletin, it says something else there. So uh, that that was me. Uh, Stacy got it right. Okay, uh, I made a last-minute change, so whatever word is there I don't even remember anymore, you can scratch it out, and you can replace it with God's credit. That we put our faith in God because of his credit. You see, we have this repeated phrase in verses 3, 5, and 9. It says of Abraham, it was counted to him as righteous. Now that word counted, it means credited. And what What Paul is doing is he's invoking an accounting term. This was an accounting term, you know, debits and credits to one's account. He's invoking an accounting term and applying it to the life of Abraham. And what he is saying is that to Abraham, it had been credited to him as righteousness. It's applied to his account. Abraham is made and called and counted as righteous. But why? Why was it credited to him as righteous? Well, during the intertestamental period, so that period between the Old and New Testaments, there were uh, commentators. You know, commentaries we're accustomed to in our modern day. They they write our commentaries. Pastors, theologians read them, write them. Some of y'all read them as well, I know. Right? There, There were commentaries today, and there were back then. And some of the Jewish commentators wrote this in the intertestamental period, talking about Abraham. Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord. He was found faithful when tested, and no one has been found like him in glory. So hear that again. He was without comparison. He was faithful. He was perfect in all his deeds. That is how Abraham received his credit. Now listen, there is no question that Abraham did many good things, right? I mean, he's the father of the faith. Right? Abraham did many good things. There's no question, right? And, and it's not just the father of the Jewish people. He's the father of us, right? Abraham. He had many sons, right? Many sons had Father Abraham, right? And, and I am you, you know, I don't know the rest of the words. Um, but, but, you know, that, that's what he was. And so there are many things that we can affirm about Abraham. Paul himself even says we're to walk in his footsteps. But Perfect. We know that can't be the case because Paul has already said that all have fallen short of the glory of God. And when he said all, he didn't just mean like us as all. He meant all, all, 
right? All people in all times and all places have fallen short of the glory of God. And we don't even have to go back to Romans. We can just go back to Genesis. And we see Abraham twice trying to pawn his wife on another man so that he can save his own skin. Like, that doesn't sound like perfect to me. No, Abraham was far from perfect. It wasn't, it wasn't his deeds that made Abraham righteous. And just so that we can be sure, Paul says in, in verses 1 and 2, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And then he goes on and says that this is a gift, not something that is earned. You see, Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, had no works to boast of. Even his religious adherence didn't make him righteous. Did you notice that in verses 9 through 10? When Paul's talking about circumcised and uncircumcised and all those things, what he says is that it was counted righteous to Abraham before he was circumcised. So this rite of circumcision, the mark of the covenant, that's not what made him righteous. Because he was declared righteous even before his religious adherence. You see, what Paul is telling us is that neither Abraham nor David, actually, neither the father of the Jews nor the greatest king of the Jews, neither were righteous because of their deeds. And just so that we know, Paul says in verses 6 through 7, David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. You see, what Paul is telling us is that what made Abraham righteous, what caused him to be credited with righteousness, was nothing of himself. It was not his deeds. It was not his works. What he's saying is it wasn't because Abraham had faith in his deeds or in his works. No, it was faith in God. It was faith in God because he is the one who credits not only Abraham, but credits us as righteous. We're to put our faith in God because of his credit applied to us. But we also put our faith in God because of the promises that he keeps. That's the second half of the passage. Paul turns to the promise that God made to Abraham. So you remember in Genesis, God made a promise. And he declared that Abraham, through Sarah, would have a child. Right? And that the promise to Abraham was that his descendants would be, more nu would be numerous, like the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. But, but there was a problem with this promise, you remember? The problem was Abraham was 99 and Sarah was 90 when the promise was made. So there's a little wrinkle in it, right? And so you could imagine the conversation that took place, right? Abraham, he comes home at the end of the day. It's been a long day working out in the fields. You know, maybe the cattle got out and he's trying to, you know, corral them or whatever. He comes in and he's talking to Sarah and they're getting ready to eat dinner. And she goes, hey, babe, how was dinner? I I don't know what the Hebrew word for babe is, but, um, but, you know, maybe that's what she said, you know. Hey, hey, sweetie, how was the day? How was the day? What, what happened? And Abraham goes, you will never believe it. God spoke to me. 
He spoke directly to me. And he made a promise, Sarah. He made a promise that we're going to have a child. We're going to have a son. And it's going to be our son. It's not an adopted son. It's not like your, your brother and, and sister-in-law. Like, they're going to pass away and we'll take their children into our house and we'll become kind of like surrogate parents to them. No, we're going to have a child, Sarah. You remember Sarah's 90, Abraham's 99. So you can imagine what's going through her mind, right? Well, well, Sarah, we're actually told, said, said to herself, how can this be? Because I'm worn out. That's what it says. I'm worn out. I, I can't have babies. And, and she turns to Abraham and says, how can this be? You're old. <laughs> like, she doesn't beat around the bush. She doesn't pull her punches. You're an old man. How can this be, right? Like, you expect her to feel, feel his forehead. Do you have a fever? You know, are you delusional? Because... 90 and 99-year-olds do not have children, right? Everything that they knew about childbearing and themselves and their age said that this promise couldn't come true, that this promise was too much, that it was going too far, that maybe it was a false promise. And we know about those, don't we? False promises, promises that are too good to be true. Like the promise when our boss tells us, oh yeah, that raise, that promotion, it's coming any day now. But weeks and months and maybe even years go by and we're still in the same job. Or the promise of relationship, the promise that I will love you, I will care about you forever only to have the one who said those words walk away and turn aside. Promises that are too good to be true. Wouldn't it have been easy for Abraham and Sarah to have believed that? This promise is too good to be true. And yet, what we hear in verses 18 through 21 is that in hope, he believed against hope. That he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. In hope, he believed against hope. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? It means that Abraham believed he had hope, he had faith, though humanly speaking, he had no grounds for hope. The only hope he had, the only faith he had, was in the promise of God. It was in the promise of God, and y'all, that is faith. It is believing and trusting in God's promises despite what we see and despite our experience. Now, maybe to some of you, that sounds like blind faith or irrational hope. Maybe it sounds like this is just a way of, of trying to make us feel comfortable, to appease a difficult feeling or, or a struggle that we're experiencing. Then maybe Abraham and Sarah, they just wanted kids so badly, and, and though they were old and unable, they, they believed and had hope and had faith, and somehow, some way, they would have a child. Maybe it sounds like blind hope, a leap, leaping into the dark. 
Maybe it sounds like Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade. So you remember Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade? He's, he's on this mission, he's on this crusade uh, to get the, uh, the Holy Grail. And so uh, as he's going, he finds the, the cave in which it's located, but there are a series of tests he has to go through to get to the grail. And, and the second to last test is, is this chasm that he's confronted by. It's far too expansive for him to jump over. Like, he can't just take a running jump and, like, Captain America jump it, right? Like, he's not a superhero. He's Indiana Jones. He's just a man, right? So he can't jump across it. It's too far. And he knows that if he falls, he will fall to his death. So what does he do? Because he knows the grail is on the other side. So Indiana, right, he comes to the edge. And he lifts up his foot and he closes his eyes. It's hard to stand. Um, closed your eyes. Um, he closes his eyes and he falls forward. Blind faith. A step into the dark. And he finds an invisible bridge. A few feet below the edge. And he's able to walk across. But when he stood there and he fell, he had no reason to believe that bridge would be there. There had not been a promise. There had not been an expectation. There wasn't a sign that said, just step. It was an invisible bridge and he had no reason to believe that it was there. He had blind faith. Friends, that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's not talking about blind faith because that's not Abraham's faith and that's not Christian faith. You see, Christian faith isn't blind. It's not foolish. It's not a, a stepping into the dark. No, as Francis Schaeffer put it, Christian faith is never without content. Christian faith is never a jump in the dark. Christian faith is always believing what God has said. And y'all, that is the difference. Our faith isn't blind. Our faith is rooted and founded in God's promises and God's faithfulness to keep his promises because that is what he has done time and again. Even those promises that seem crazy to us, right, seem unexplainable to us, he fulfills those promises like having a 90-year-old woman get pregnant. You see, God's promises aren't like man's. Men and women, we waver and falter and stumble, but not God. You see, when he makes a promise, he keeps it. And he kept that promise to Abraham and Sarah. And so Paul uses Abraham's faith as a way of shoring up our faith. I mean, that's what he says, right? In verse 23 through 24. The word it was counted to him, the words it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. You see, when we look at Abraham and see that he had faith in God's promise, it should cause us to want to have faith in God's promises. Because like Abraham's faith, ours is not without content. Content. It's not a jump in the dark. It rests on God's promise and his fulfillment. Look at the end of our passage. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, the promise that God has made to us is that for all who believe in Jesus, for all who have faith in him, our promise that he makes is that our sins are forgiven. That is the promise. 
You see, Schaefer goes on. If you looked in the front of your bulletin at the reflection and you read it, then you probably, maybe you noticed that I didn't stop, or I did stop. I didn't finish the quote. He said, Christian faith is never without content. It's never a jump in the dark. It's always believing what God has said. And then he says, and Christian faith rests upon upon Christ's finished work on the cross. You see, the promise that God has made to all who believe in Jesus, for all who look to him, for all who trust our lives to his death and resurrection, the promise is that our sins have been forgiven. So friends, where is your faith? What are you trusting in? Who have you put your faith in? Put in God. Do you remember Jesus after he was resurrected? He appears to his disciples. And his disciples were there, but Thomas wasn't. And so the disciples go and tell Thomas, hey, we saw him. He's alive. He's resurrected. And Thomas, right, uh, our friend who doubts, what does he say? He says, unless I can touch his wounds and see with my own eyes and touch with my I will never believe. And so a few days later, what happens? Jesus is now, the resurrected Jesus is standing before Thomas and he says, see my wounds? See my side? And he looks at Thomas and he says, believe. And Thomas responds, my Lord and my God, to which Jesus then responds, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Friends, though we haven't seen Jesus with our own eyes, let us believe with faith. Let us believe with faith, faith that God not only makes promises, but he has kept them, promises to be our God and for us to be his people, promises that he will draw near to us and we will draw near to him, promises that our sins are forgiven, and in keeping those promises, he credits as righteous those who have faith. And so let us be a people of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and ask that you would make us that, a people of faith, That we would not look at our own lives, we would not look at the world around us, but we would look at your promises and your work through your son, our Lord Jesus, what he has done on our behalf, that our faith would be in you and it would rest in you. It would be grounded in you. Father, make us a people of faith today and all of our days so we would walk with you and you would be given the glory that you deserve. We pray all this in Christ's name and God's people said together, amen.